This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Event Dynamic specializes in maximizing revenue and increasing attendance. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be the host of this podcast. I've been very fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to not only give back to those that want to get in this business, for those that are in this business that want to continue to excel at a high level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been a big focus, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways to be in their shoes one day. So without further ado, our lucky guest this week and our special guest this week, most people in this business certainly know this person or know the name from all of the successes in this business. And I actually feel like I'm pretty decent at sales to be able to get him to commit to this podcast early on. Sports Illustrated had once dubbed him the guru of ticket sales. He's the co-author of Sports Marketing, which is a book most of us have either read or studied from, sold over 75,000 copies in 11 different languages. I'm excited to have Dr. Bernie Mullen, the founder and chairman of the Aspire Group to 52 Weeks of Hustle. Bernie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Travis. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. Bernie, well, what a pleasure. You know, I want to give the listeners just a quick kind of backstory of how I got to know you. So I started my career with the Atlanta Spirit, with the Hawks, Thrashers, and Phillips Arena. And, you know, certainly like most of our listeners, I was scared, nervous, excited. And on the first week of the job, uh, you know, Bernie Mullen, who is our president and CEO, comes down, talks about your career, gives you a lot of advice, welcomes us to the family, which is huge. You know, and I know most of the listeners, they, you know, they've heard of president and CEOs they've never get to talk to. So for inside sales to start, to listen to you that first week, and then, you know, right at the end, you said, hey, don't be a stranger, feel free to reach out whenever. And Maybe I was crazy and didn't really understand and didn't know the difference, but you know, you better believe that night I shot you an email. You responded right away. You set up some time for one-on-one. And, and ever since that day, I knew this is the person that I need to continue to learn from. And, and I'm excited to have a, a long-lasting friendship with you as well. So you know, I really want to give every listener just a better understanding of, of who you are, Dr. Bernie Mullen, just an amazing person. So, so thanks again. Well, that's very kind of you, Travis. And, uh, you know, it goes both ways. Um, I've always, we've always opened that up to all of the young people. And certainly to me, the most exciting thing as I, you know, get older and I've had many years in the business, uh, there is nothing bigger, better, and more fun uh, than to see people like yourself um, when you started in the business and where you went to. And you had the chutzpah to actually take me up on it. And too many people don't. And it, it was, you know, it, it's not one of those things, hey, if you're ever in the area, stop by. And people go, yeah, yeah, right. right. It's, you know, um, we, we've, we've been there, done that. And the greatest joy and the greatest reward 
um, and certainly at this end of my career um, is to see people like yourself that took that opportunity and took it with gusto and hustle because your name for your show and your name for your business is very appropriate because that's who you are, what you are and what you do. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And, you know, listeners, that's the first piece of advice there. Like if somebody opens the door for you, whether that be on a sales route or, or in a leadership route, take it, take it, take full advantage of it. Absolutely. Take full advantage of it. And, you know, I mean, and the door is a good analogy. I started my business, um, you know, in, in the sales business back in England as a university student, I was a bartender uh, to get my spending money. My dad, you know, had done well selling, selling life insurance, but he believed I needed to learn the value of money. You know, we were blue collar growing up. I was in income subsidized housing, what we call council housing in Liverpool, England growing up. But uh, dad, you know, dad wanted me to know the value of money. So I was a bartender Then my dad passed away and the little bit of tuition support that he was able to give went away. And so I started selling pots and pans and literally pots and pans. And my idol later on in my career was Zig Ziglar, the Guinness Book of Records, world's greatest sales guy, wrote all kinds of positive motivational books, who sold the exact same company's pots and pans. And they were expensive and door to door. And literally, if someone opened the door, you got in, you put your foot in it and, and you sold Yeah, there's going to be a lot of doors slammed on you. Oh, a lot of doors slammed on you, you know, and, and in those days, it was mainly homemakers, you know, females and you know, if, if you were doing it at dinner time or early evening and uh, you got the man of the house who's like, get the hell out of here, this young 20-year-old college student uh, trying to sell expensive pots and pans. So it was an incredible learning experience. You know, for those that are in this business that maybe get hung up on every once in a while, like, how bad can it be? You can just smile and dial to the next one. Right there, you're walking down the driveway just knowing you got your, your face slammed in the door. Well, you, you ran back out the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> Never know what's going to happen. There, there, were, there were occasions I, I legged it out the driveway and said to the, my boss, I'm not doing the rest of that street because that this guy's looking for me. Yeah, I, I was getting close to ha having his wife sign for, you know, in those days, $400 set of pots and pans. And this was, uh, this was about 1970, you know, so you can imagine what. Wow. It's a thousand dollar sets of pots and yeah, pans. Yeah, the really now the high end. Well, so so Bernie certainly obviously a, a wild you know career path, and we could talk forever about your successes and career path. But you know you mentioned British born, huge soccer player, even played semi pro in England. Went on to coach soccer, won a few East Coast championships. You still play soccer here in, in there in Atlanta. Um, you know degree from Coventry University, and then your masters at the University of Kansas. So. You know, Bernie, I guess, you know, give the listeners, like, how did you ultimately come to the United States and then end up in the sports world? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, um, when people used to read Sunday newspapers, Travis, um, the family circus cartoon on the back of the paper, and, the, you know, the kids go from point A to point Z, like, you know, um, I, I wish it was this brilliantly designed strategic career path. Um, but... You know, I uh, obviously uh, I put my faith in God. So uh, I believe uh, for me and for others, I fully respect if people think it's the universe or some cosmic force. But for me, it's clearly God and um, that has driven my career as a Catholic Christian. So um, it, 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 funnily enough, it, start, it starts with Heineken beer in Amsterdam and being 16, 17 and 18 years old. 
my two closest friends from England, we hitchhiked through Europe every summer. And we would do, the Americans would do Europe on $5 a day and we'd do it for about a buck 50, staying at youth hostels and, you know, buying food in grocery stores and hitchhiking everywhere. But anyway, we, we would go, every city we would go to the brewery because the brewery would have free tours and you could get free beer and free food. And we would take, you know, brown paper bag in those days, it didn't have plastic bags, it's not <laughs> old. Uh, and we'd get the bread and the cheese. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we would eat cheese sandwiches while we were there with the beer. And then we'd take some home to the YMCA or the youth hostel and, and toast it and then, you know, grilled cheese sandwich for dinner that night. Uh, and that's how we did it. And um, we were from Liverpool and we would sit across from the brewery tour. We'd wait for three cute American girls to get in line and run over behind them. And we'd start talking in our best Liverpool accent, which in the 1960s was gold because they, you sounded like the Beatles and the Beatles <laughs> were the hottest rock band in the world. And so, um, you know, some of these young girls would go, Oh my God, you sound like the Beatles. Well, yeah, we're from Liverpool. We know them all, you know, we know John Paul. We didn't. We Good died. friends with them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but anyway, I pen pal with one of the young ladies who was a very sweet young lady from Eastern Michigan. And uh, she came over to study and uh, we dated for a little while. And she got her parents to send her a book on summer camp jobs in America. And so I applied everywhere. My whole soccer team, as a sophomore, I was the captain of the university team. Um, I'm playing semi-pro on the side, which you could do in England because it's not NCAA. Um, so I got the job. A bunch of my buddies got the job. A bunch of my rugby team buddies got the job and um, went, went from there. And uh, I ended up being uh, accepted by the Rolls-Royce of summer camp. So these were eight-week Jewish you know, kids, sleepaway camps um, and uh, Camp Takaho in Maine. Came back the next year as the head soccer counselor, came back the next year as the athletic director, and the owner of the camp says, I'll give you a scholarship if you'll come and run the youngest group of kids in the camp. And so I took his scholarship offer, um, you know, applied for the MBA program at Harvard and Columbia and Southern Cal and everywhere, and Kansas was the first place to accept me. That's awesome. So, I mean, just total fluke. Uh, and absolutely loved it, became a Jayhawk and, uh, you know, had um, never seen American football, but got season tickets with my ex-wife who was English and uh, watched Kansas. We had a good team that year, won the Liberty Bowl. Actually, uh, I think we're in the top 20 ranked for once with Kansas football. And then, of course, come January, um, I start, um, I, I watched my first ever basketball game. And it happens to be UCLA Notre Dame. The first time UCLA lost in four years was the first basketball game I ever saw in my life. And um, <clears throat> I uh, saw that game and um, absolutely loved it. And Monday night, Notre Dame is coming in to play Kansas as number one in the country. Notre Dame is. And they're playing in Allen Fieldhouse. I find out they sell tickets on the day of the game. Um, so... I line up, get tickets, go to the game. And uh, actually my ex-wife and I sat out for about three hours. It was like 10 degrees outside Allen Fieldhouse in January. And uh, we're front row, triple overtime. Kansas loses to Notre Dame. Both Kansas and Notre Dame went to the final four that year and I'm hooked, hooked in basketball. So, you know, I saw my first baseball game in 1970 at Yankee Stadium. 
double header and I, my buddy and I walked out in the middle of the double header because we didn't know what a double header was. And in 1985, I'm the senior VP of business for the Pittsburgh Pirates, 15 years later. I that, see my first, yeah. isn't incredible? Yeah, that's yeah. what I said, you know, the, the listeners, this is going to be a fun story, getting that back history of not ever watching, you know, an American football game or basketball game or baseball game, and then the impact you made in the sports industry. So, you know, coming from the, the University of Kansas, you're then a professor at University of Massachusetts in management, sports business, and certainly helped put UMass, you know, on the map, uh, you know, on the business end. And they, you know, then you decided to join the team, which to your point, ironically, it was a team I ended up joining later in my career, the Pittsburgh Pirates. So, when you were at the Pirates, you broke a ton of records, you know, went from 700,000 fans to over 2 million fans. You know, as you look at that, like, how was your experience at that first time being on the team side of the business? Well, it was, it was simultaneously incredibly exciting, stimulating, and frightening. Um, you know, here I am, a professor. What do I know? Um, and uh, it was interesting because, uh, you know, they, they'd interviewed me several times and you know, not offered me the position because it was like, oh, you're a professor, you haven't run a business like that. So I eventually said to them, look, give me a strategic project to work on and I'll do that. I'll get to know your people. I'll get to know me and, you know, you'll see if I produce any results. And so that's what I did. And um, so I actually did um, a study for them on redoing all of their season ticket pricing and scaling the house and, you know, in those days, it was go get every Major League Baseball team season ticket brochure and find out what their strategy were. There weren't websites, yeah. um, you know, so you couldn't go online and get all that stuff. And it took weeks and weeks and weeks for some of these boogers to send. You know, I pose and say, I'm moving to your area. I want to buy season tickets. They still wouldn't mail it to you. I mean, it was just incredibly pathetic, bad sports marketing experience. So, um Anyway, so I did that project, presented to them, worked with all the senior executive team. And through that experience, they, um, you know, they obviously uh, uh, hired me uh, full time. So it, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Um, you know, we had um, we had a lot of things going on that I mean, uh, Zig Ziglar always used to call it stinking thinking. And um, and I think that you know, today we all talk about, you know, your attitude determines your altitude. And, and I believe that even today. And I, I think that's always important. We had a lot of bad attitudes in the front office because, um, you know, we had, we were last in the league, we were in attendance, 700,000. Nobody was even below a million except us. We were the worst team. We we're losing 10 million a year. We had seven players in the federal grand jury drug trials. We had, um, you know, the pirate, pirate mascot was the, was the drug supply. You can't <laughs> I mean, make some of this you know, stuff up. You're being arrested. Yeah, you couldn't make this up. So, you know, in those days, we took everyone through Dale Carnegie training to basically change their attitudes. You know, we, we had a, a secretary in the marketing department that used to forge team autographed baseballs to be given away. You know, we had no respect for our product. We had no respect for ourselves. Rick Cerrone, not the catcher Rick Cerrone, but Rick Cerrone became my VP of PR, went, later went on for years as the VP of PR for the Yankees. Rick came in and, and we gutted the, the, you know, you walk through a small corridor to get in and you had storage rooms and a small office on one side. We gutted it all out. We made a beautiful big lobby way. We built shadow boxes and, you know, got the kind of quality of the Hall of Fame 
quality for displays. We went back to Tiffany's and bought replicas of the World Series championships. We had Honus Wagner's uh, glove. We had tickets from the first ever World Series. You know, all stuff you probably saw when you went yeah. there. Well, no that way. stuff, we had, we had Roberto Clemente's game-worn jersey in a plastic bag in a filing cabinet in the PR offices. I mean, you know, the library, the PR offices. I mean, stupid crap like that. We have, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we've got this amazing history, amazing brand. Be proud. And, and that was all part. It was, it was very much culture building. Yeah. You know, and it, and it was, you know, the biggest message I'd say to you for, the, for your listeners and viewers is every one of you have a personal brand and you need to invest in your personal brand. And the personal brand, more than anything else, has to speak about honesty and integrity. I mean, because you have to be authentic. And young people sniff out people who aren't authentic in about two minutes these days. Oh, no, but it's got to start with you being authentic. And the greatest thing about you in your career, why you are where you are, why we at the Atlanta Spirit back in the day saw you immediately as a superstar is because your integrity and of your work ethic. And, you know, in Aspire, one of our acronyms that's really important is called WAPR. And we have a WAPR award every month. And WAPR is, W is work ethic. H is honesty and integrity. O is openness to learning. The first P is passion for sales, productivity, potential for leadership, okay? And then performance. And so, we, we reward, on, we hire on that basis, we reward on that basis, we promote on that basis, huge on our company for promoting from within. And that's what everybody listening to this needs to say is, what is my personal brand? What does it stand for? It's like Nike says, just do it. Yep. And what does that mean? Do your own thing. Yep. You know, whatever your it is, do it. Be it, live it, you know, follow it be authentic about it, you know, do a brand analysis on yourself and make sure that you are living an authentic brand experience. And then the second part is not only live it, is invest in it. Whether it's books, experiences, practices, talking to people, find a mentor like you have done all your life, you know, and, and you know, Luda Pali will always be your mentor you know, as well Zabes and all the other guys, which is why you followed them as you did in your career. And to me, the, you know, if you look at the history of sports and you go back to the Bear Bryants and all the other legendary coaches, the Sabans of the world or the Belichicks of the world, they have people that follow, follow them. And, you know, we call them disciples, but that's a little, little too strong for me, but, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, they've, they've learned from those people and they've modeled, you know, they've, they've been themselves, they've done it their own way, but they've learned from those people and they've learned everything they can. And the single biggest thing has been be authentic and invest in yourself. Yeah, you know, Bernie, certainly, you know, thank you for the kind words, but I think most importantly for all those listeners too, is making sure you, know, you have that personal brand and that whopper mentality. And there are going to be times and right now is a time that you know, you've got to invest in yourself and you've got to continue to push forward because that's who's going to separate themselves and be elite when we get out of this. Without a doubt. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, we all know the old story about, you know, when you get a lemon, you make it lemonade out of it. And, and I think that's what's important. COVID-19 is 
one of the most bitter lemons that has ever happened in the history of the world. And certainly for all of us, you know, in our, in our modern experience. So what have we learned from that? Um, and I would say the thing to learn from that is, you know, obviously we know all the trite sayings, you know, when the going gets tough, tough get going. But, you know, as you and I were chatting before we got on the podcast, as a company, what we have been doing for three months now is saying, how can we get better? How can we bigger, big, bigger, bigger, stronger? And how can we provide for our client partners more than we did before? So how can we reimagine our business? You know, we had a session two days ago of, um, you know, obviously if, if there are more schools that decide not to have sports programs this fall and we've got 174 people on our payroll with about 20 something empty seats, you know, at the time that we, that, uh, COVID shut down from the point of view of shelter in place. We haven't shut down. We unfortunately had to furlough 22 people because the university wouldn't let us sell tickets. They had nothing to do. And for those young men and women, they made more with the government stimulus and unemployment than they would with no commission. They'd make more if they were selling and making commission, but right now better off financially. We'll bring them back the second we're allowed to sell tickets. But in the interim, we've thought about doing contact tracing, for example, you know, uh, you know, you, you've been in the presence of someone that um, had COVID-19. Someone's got to call you and say, Travis, go get a, a COVID-19 test done. Make sure you're okay. Um, we've thought about those kind of things. We've done a lot of different things. What are, what are other skill sets? What are things we can do to the university? Should we get in providing the PPE equipment phase? No, that's not our core business. We're not going to do that. But, you know, should we give our five cents worth of, we think that you can have people come to the venue and not necessarily have to have safe distancing. Maybe you do. Maybe you have to be six feet apart, three seats apart. Maybe not. But you can come with a mask on. You can get your temperature check done. We can get tens of thousands of people into a venue quickly with these temperature checks and may have to have a thousand of these digital thermometers and they've got 60 bucks each. So... You know, it, it's an expense that a pro team or a large college can make if you need to. And, and then we have the college atmosphere and, you know, who knows after three months, we don't need the masks, you know, um, or whatever as it evolves. So I, I think that's, that's the attitude that we've taken as a company, we've taken as a senior executive team. And that we'd encourage for every young person in this business is use this as a time for you to invest back in yourself, build your brand, add skill sets, improve where you're going. Because it's, it's a challenging time, but it's an opportunity to be better and learn and have another tool in your tool set. And to stay elite in this level, you need to continue to evolve. And you know, so Bernie, you, know, you had in a lot of your career, some experiences nobody will ever you know, have or very limited people will have. And one of those, you know, after the Pirates, you, you move out to Denver for the Colorado Rockies as they were becoming an expansion franchise. You're one of the first employees there. When did you actually get to Colorado? And then ultimately, how was it to kick off a brand new franchise? Well, it was super exciting to kick off a brand new franchise. And I've had the, the benefit of doing it a couple of times. You know, I've been um, I've never been gone in and, you know, I've never been, um, uh, you know, coach care and walk into the Golden State Warriors and win the NBA championship in your first year, you know, and I'm not knocking him because he's phenomenal. You know, just saying he had amazing talent. Uh, that doesn't happen. 
I've had turnarounds in startups and the Rocky startup was phenomenal. So, you know, blank sheet of paper in many areas um, and, and so, so much fun and so exciting um, because the pent up demand was just absolutely amazing. You know, we had 13 and a half thousand people already paid 50 bucks a piece to, to have deposits on season tickets. You know, we eventually ended up selling 24,000 of them and, um, the only team that had more season tickets than us was the uh, LA Dodgers. Um, so everything was fresh. I mean, Denver was incredible. It was so ripe for a major league team, um, you know, and we were able to build a great team. Though, You know, um, the thing that people don't realize is that with ownership groups, and we had, uh, I think, nine or 11 owners, I forget now, um, you know, there were some things there. I mean, I had one of the owners, psychiatrist sons, stuffed on me as a director of broadcasting. He was actually a really nice guy, really smart guy. And, you know, but I had to teach him the job. So I wasn't able to go get a pro, you know, and I had, uh, you know, the, the president's brother was my director of merchandising and he was phenomenal. And I had a, a VP of marketing partnerships who was the, one of the owner's golf buddies, you know, who uh, fortunately, you know, had a lot of good natural instincts, but they were all projects. They all had to be taught. They all had to be trained. They all had to be developed. Um, and so it wasn't as easy as you'd like it to be, but the pent up demand in that market was just off the charts. And it wasn't just Colorado. It was, you know, the 11 States of the Rocky mountain region. There was no diamondbacks at that point in time, you know, so pretty exciting at all the Western Kansas, Western Nebraska, you know, as well as going up to Montana and, and Wyoming and able to get New Mexico as radio and TV station network and build, I think the second biggest network after the Cardinals has always had the biggest. So a lot of, a lot of firsts, um, obviously broke all the old time attendance records, uh, which was a lot of fun. And, and a lot of that was strategy. And, um, a lot of people, Travis don't know to this day that, uh, that, First, we had an eight-game opening homestand. We created eight opening days. So we created eight themes because we all knew opening days would sell out. And we didn't sell out everyone, but we got 68,000. We got 82,000, 83,000 all-time record opening day for the actual opening day. You know, and it led off with EY, our leadoff hitter. It's a, you know, blue, really should have been a pop fly, but because it was in Mile High Stadium and short uh, fence in left field, you know, boom, home run, yay. Uh, off to a great start, it was a lot of fun. And then we averaged 68,000 fans, you know, so we got over half a million in and the opening homestand. And basically I call it the holy SH1T moment because <laughs> everybody went, holy, yeah, you know, oh my God. And we sold a million single game tickets in the next month. By everybody going, my God, I better buy the Dodgers, Cubs, Cardinals games now or I'll never get in uh, if that's what it's like in April. You know, yeah. I think that's it. You know, Bernie, I've always, you know, I have a lot of things that we'll talk about trust and respect to you is you've always been very innovative. And I think all the leaders, you know, that are listening in and all the, the sales professionals right now, you've got to be innovative. You've got to think outside the box. And that's exactly what you did to the eight home openers. And so, yeah. You know, Bernie, after overseeing the launch and the initial construction of Coors Field, you know, because back then you weren't playing at Coors Field, you stayed in Denver, you oversaw an International Hockey League franchise, and then on to the University of Denver. Um, you, you've kind of mentioned already, our listeners will certainly realize you're the one to start launch projects, and you get them to an elite level. 
you know, while at the University of Denver, you took a D2 program, helped them move to a D1 level. Uh, in the year 2000, you get the opportunity, in my opinion, uh, to really change the sports landscape as we know it. And that's when Commissioner David Cern gives you a call, asks you to start what you end up calling Team Marketing and Business Operations, Teambo at the NBA League office. Like, walk us through that conversation and, and kind of the creation of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to back you up just for one quick second because I think it puts it in perspective. When people ask about my career, I always say the Grizzlies was the most fun. And that's because we built everything from scratch, both on the team side and on the business side. And so only from a career point of view, for me to be a CEO of a major league team, I knew I had to run the team side, not just the business side. And I have the business side of the Pirates and the Rockies. And so the Grizzlies gave me the chance to go hire Butch Goring, a great coach, get out of his way, let him be successful, you know, and, and average 13,000 fans a year and go 72, 20, and six and win every trophy in the league. And most of that was butchy, uh, you know, with, with me just wrapping around and putting a firewall around him so he could do his great stuff. Um, so, I think it's certainly impressive that, that you always know all the records. That, that's yeah. that's well, you know, I mean, I'll tell you why, Travis, and I think that's really important. One of my things, if I came into what we called inside sales back in those days now, you know, what we always call everything you aspire, fan relationship management center, because we think that's really the calling and the right branding and the right concept. When I walked into you, you knew your numbers. And you know that we always had the sales bone. And the sales bone was always, what's your goal? Where are you? And are you on track or off track? And if you're not on track, what are you doing about it? And I think that young professionals need to leave their lives by, where are you? What are you doing? You know, are you on track? And if not, what is your plan to get on track? And I learned that from the president of the Pirates, Mac Prine, a brilliant man who, when I asked him six months in, give me an evaluation, what did he say? He said, what's your number one goal? And I gave him the goal. Where are you on it? Is it on track, on track? You know, so was it going to be 12 months of this? Was it going to be this before it did this? Was it going to be this because you'd improve quickly? You had to know that. And that's the greatest training for David Stern because that's how David Stern was. So you've always got to be on top of your numbers. And when I came into inside sales back in the day and asked you, you knew what your numbers were. You were numbers driven, not only in the fruit, but in the root. Here's my call volume. Here's my call duration. Here's my referrals. Here's my appointment set. You had the numbers because you knew just like Coach Saban says, do your job on every play. And if everybody in the team does their job on every play, we will win. I don't coach to win. I coach to have everybody do their job. And, and I think that's important. So, you know, thank you for pointing that out. So with David, it was, um, it was an incredible opportunity. It was, you know, it was change the whole industry. It was build McKinsey, the ultimate consulting best practices unit for the NBA with the ability to look at every single number, know every owner, have the power to go in and say to owners, as we did, uh, your CEO ain't cutting it, your senior VP, chief revenue officer is not cutting it, or you're not doing this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, obviously we changed the industry. It's not well known, but, you know, I, I went in there with uh, Michael Jordan having retired. Everybody's, you know, focused on the last dance and boy, is that awesome. Right. You know, um, and particularly for me, having been inside it and knowing many of the players, but, um, 
So, you know, Michael had retired for two years when I got to the NBA in 2000. Tennis is doing this. Revenues are doing this. You know, and David's got this great collective bargaining agreement with all the players that is all about your pay will go up because your share of revenues will go up because the revenues will go up. Well, ticket sales weren't. And so our job was real simple. You know, David asked me, he said, um, what's the biggest brand, brand manifestation element on the business side? You know, the players in the game on the business side. I said, an empty seat is a cancer to your brand. I got the job. <laughs> there it is. You know, it was, it was that simple. It's like, okay, what are you going to do to not have an empty seat? Well, here's all the things. And, and every one of the best practices we take for granted today, one of which is year-round telemarketing, inside sales, fan relationship management, as we're all young sales kids cut their teeth, you know, and all the leaders cut their teeth and learn the basics, the X's and O's, and go on like you have done. Um, that, that we built. That wasn't in the NBA. There were four teams, had part-time telemarketing. As soon as the season started, they stopped. You know, four years later, we had 24 teams year-round telemarketing. They were averaging about $2 million each, $48 million of revenue that wasn't there before. And there, were, and there were seven other things like all the specializations, service and retention that moved the needle on, you know, millions of dollars on retention, dedicated year-round season ticket sales, dedicated year-round groups, yield management, and annual increases in pricing. All of those strategies was a quarter billion dollars a year of incremental revenue from the first year of team belt. I mean, no wonder that every, every person, sorry. And think about that listeners, a quarter billion, quarter billion, 250 million bucks, almost 10 million a team. And you had five teams like the Lakers, the Knicks in those days, Sacramento Kings were all sold out. You know, you couldn't move the needle Utah jazz. They were sold out. You couldn't move the needle on, on you know, all, all those top teams. Um, but we did it, and we did it with people like O'Neill and Bill Sutton and Luda Polly and, you know, I mean, so many others, I apologize for not mentioning all their names, that worked so hard by going in and changing the cultures, first and foremost, changing the personnel. And what we now have our five S's, which is, you know, the, obviously it's strategy, it's, it's, it's going to be the systems, it's going to be the structure, it's going to be the supervision, and it's going to be the level of staffing of committed people uh, and investing in people and giving them the resources and giving them the philosophy and the structure to, to be successful. So yeah. it, it, was, it launched my career in a different way, in an amazing way, and always eternally grateful. God rest David's soul. I mean, the, the greatest commissioner ever, the best sports marketer ever, and a, even though he was never trained as a sports marketer, his gut instincts were amazing. He hired really sharp people. He tested you like crazy and whooped your butt on a daily basis, but held you to the highest standards. And, and that's why I mentioned you. I, I think it certainly changed the sports landscape as we know it. For those of you that don't know what Teambo is, it's team marketing business operations now, the NBA, WNBA, and G League, sharing best practices to Bernie's point, talking to owners, uh, and going through, you know, in, in really figuring out how are you going to grow the business, getting more cheeks and seats, the sponsorship dollars, and really how to run an organization. I certainly have been fortunate to work there. I know a lot of our future guests uh, are either people that have worked there or certainly worked very closely with it. Um, so so to, to some more advice, and you've certainly done a great job, so hopefully listeners, you've got a pen and, and paper ready to go, but 
you spent a lot of time around not only college students as a professor, but also now you're still individuals getting started in the business. You spent a lot of time around presidents, CEOs, executives. What are some characteristics that always stick out to you that have been the most successful people in our industry? Yeah, that's a great question, Travis. And it's probably the most important question. Um, I think successful people always had great mentors. And they always had great mentors because they had a relationship with a mentor who would really tell them honestly what was going on. And, and had experience, but also had the view, particularly if they were a CEO, you know, you knew what ownership really wanted. You knew how to communicate things. You knew what to do. You knew what not to do. And so mentorship is really key. And you don't get given mentorship. You earn it. And um, you, you, you earn it. You know, I've never been someone that says you have to, you have to put in ridiculously long hours because that's the thing when I first came and went to UMass and looked in the sports business and particularly looked at football, whether it was college football or the NFL and days of Dick Vermeil, guys that gave themselves a mental uh, a nervous breakdown because they had their bed in their office and, you know, they never, they never had any work-life balance. So I've never been one to say, you know, you've, you've got to, it's not the law school mentality that, that David Stone grew up with and Gary Bettman in the NHL because they both were Proskauer Rose guys. And, you know, my daughter is a district attorney in Denver and she said, dad, I'm not going to a law firm because you got to work minimum six and a half days a week. And, you know, I'm not one to do that. I want to have a life. So I've never been someone that says hours, hours, hours. At the same time, you know, the people that stand out very often are the ones that put in the hours. But it's like Michael Jordan says, you know, if you take a thousand shots a day and you don't do it the right way, all you learn is how to shoot badly. You know, you've, you've, yes, you've got to have the Michael Gladwell 10,000 hours. And yes, you've got to have the thousand golf balls a day, which is Arnold Palmer, or the thousand shots a day, which is Michael Jordan, or the thousand, you know, uh, hockey shots, slap shots from Wayne Gretzky. All these people that that was successful. Yeah, they had incredible talent. They had incredible drive. They had incredible competitiveness. And that's what you see with the last dance with Michael. He was over the top, forcing everybody else to live by his standards. But look what it got him. You know, um, definitely the goat of basketball. And, you know, with all due respect to LeBron, you know, but probably the goat all time of all athletes in the world, you know, all due respect to Messi, Ronaldo, Pelé, you know, doesn't matter. Michael was the goat. Michael is the goat. Um, and, and so I think that's really, really important is you earn that mentorship as a mentoree. And once you've got that, listen, learn, you know, because there's so much that people can say, look, if you do, you can do that, but here's the consequences of doing that. I'd recommend you do that. And I think that's number one. I think number two is what we said before is that you can only be yourself. You can learn from other people, but you don't want to become necessarily the other people because God created you as a unique individual. And so you have to be yourself. You gotta be true to yourself and that's true to your own integrity and true to 
your, your, what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And as you ascend into leadership, very often we think we have to know all the answers. You don't. You need to know all the questions. That really good effect. David Stern was a son of a bitch. Uh, no two ways about it. But the bugger was the best listener I've ever met in my life. He would turn his back to you with his arms folded around the back like Prince Charles. And I always thought, what the hell is he doing? And he'd look out the window, whether it was in his office, you know, in, in New York uh, on Fifth Avenue, or whether it was in his private conference room. And it was right down on the towers of St. Patrick's Cathedral, right down Fifth Avenue. And until 9-11, you could see the World Trade Centers. Both were all down there. And, and you know, because you, you know exactly what I'm talking about with now Adam's office. And he would, he would look and he would listen and he would get the absolute essence of what you were saying. And he would come back and go, you'd go, holy shit, I've been wrestling with that for about three months. And he got it in 30 seconds better than I've got it wrestling with it in three months. <laughs> and he did. He was brilliant. Yeah. But you gotta, you've really got to listen. And, and then you have to make a commitment to be the best you can be. Um, I think that's number three. And I think the final thing is, um, you know, when you screw up, you know, you apologize. You know, I mean, you know, David wouldn't be that polite. He'd flat out, you know, he'd let you know when you effed up. And he told you you effed up. He didn't shorten it either. And, and, you know, that you, you apologize for effing up and you learn from it and you make damn sure you don't do it again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Bernie, you know, you're, you're obviously, you're leading the charge, making a huge impact in the NBA, consulting the league-wide revenues, as you mentioned, we're going through the roof. And I'm sure you're getting job offer after job offer after job offer. And you finally decide, you know, to, to take the president CEO role of the Atlanta Spirit, the Hawks, Thrashers, Phillips Arena, where both teams, uh, let's, you know, call a spade a spade. We're horrible teams on the court. Worst. Business <laughs> tremendously. Why was that the right move for you? Well, um, you know, I was, I was ready to go run a team. Um, I think career-wise, and Steve Schaumwald, who was the CEO of the Bulls, said to me, get the longest and biggest contract you can because you'll never work anywhere else again. Um, and, and I love Steve. He's a great, great man. Uh, and I laughed at him at the time. And ever since, I'm like, God, he knew what he was talking about. Um, and and that, that was a couple of different things. Um, I haven't answered the question you asked. Why was it the right move? I was ready to... to to go work at a team and um, I think ready to have Scott O'Neill succeed me. And Scott was, was certainly ready for that. Scott, um, I think also gave consideration to maybe even taking the, the Hawks job. I mean, he was smart. He went and took the Madison square garden job, but um, the, the one piece of advice I give you when you do that is it goes back to mentorship. You've got to know who you're working for. And, and I went to work for nine people initially with the Atlanta Spirit, as it was called. And sadly, you know, very quickly we learned to call it the Atlanta Dispirit because the owners were in lawsuits fighting each other. And there was three groups. There was a Boston group. There was a Washington, D.C. group. There was an Atlanta group, as you know. Yep. And um, the Washington and Boston group, uh, sorry, the Washington and Atlanta group ganged up on the Boston guy to get him out. 
Then the Atlanta guy ganged up on the Washington guy to get him out. And then eventually, you know, the NBA said to the Atlanta people, you're out, you know, and they've got new ownership in there. And so it was, it was, it was never a great scenario from that point of view. So you had the worst team in basketball. You had an expansion team in hockey, never had a winning season. You had a fantastic arena. You had a great market for concerts and events, but not a good market for sports. Because 25, 30 years ago, Atlanta was a market of 1 million people. It's now almost 7 million. You know, the, the Olympics just was the catalyst for, and the airport expansion and growth catalyst for phenomenal growth. And it's the distribution hub and it's the education hub, medical hub, financial center of the Southeast. So, you know, that's what drove it, but it was not a good sports market because everybody was a transplant. You know, right. you were selling to them. Um, why was it the right decision? Because I wanted that challenge. Um, you know, would I have done it again, knowing how hard it was? Yes, with the right ownership group. And, you know, please excuse me because there are people in that ownership group that I became very friendly with, wonderful people who um, I think if it, they had controlled it and owned it, they would have been great owners, but they didn't. And the infighting was incredibly counterproductive. But, you know, in the four years that I ran it, what do we do? We turn the Hawks around from, I think they'd gone seven or eight years with not being in the playoffs and they went to the playoffs almost 10 years straight during the 60 win season uh, because we sucked it up and, you know, got rid of all the high price overworked players, went young, you know, got our nose bloodied, won, you know, 13 games and lost 68, uh, you know, which was 69, which is not fun. <laughs> we had a Jam. lost a whole season. We lost the off season before the whole year and the off season afterwards. We lost almost 18 months with no hockey and had to come back after that. A great learning experience. Um, like I said, the arena is fantastic. Fourth most profitable in the world. But, uh, and so great, great learning experience as a manager, how to deal with people, uh, what you like, what you don't like, totally changed the culture, as you know, of the organization from a losing organization to a winning organization. Inherited $47 million of operating losses and got it down to 13 million and built the basis for where it is today. So I, I, I've been so blessed, you know, without a shadow of a doubt with the experiences. You know, and, and Bernie, that was one of the advices that that first week I was on the job, I remember you talking about, I was like, control what you can control. And now, you know, being removed from that and understanding kind of the dynamics of, of who you're working for and the ownership group, like, that is what you did. You controlled what you can control. You know, I, I can't thank you enough for allowing me to be a part of that family. Like you brought in a lot of great talented people that, that we are all still great friends and mentors with today. And, you know, so you had, you had, to your point, you turned it around both on the team side and the business side dealt with a lot of hurdles, which is what we talk about a lot in this business. Like it's going to be yeah. a grind. You've had a lot of success. You decide, you know, once again, you turn another organization around and you said, you know what? Now it's time to start my own company, the Aspire Group, uh, which is now you, you've kind of started, launched, and, and super successful. Like, what what made you all ultimately start that? Well, um, you know, I, I in December of two thousand and seven, I'd gone back to New York and told David. You know, I said, "Look, uh, you know, we'd had the famous front page picture of Billy Knight refusing our GM refusing to shake the uh, one of the owners, the Boston owner's hand." Cause he nixed the Joe Johnson trade. We didn't nix it. He, he had an injunction which delayed it for about three weeks. 
And, um, you know, we had all of that nonsense. And I finally said, David, this is, you know, this is a really tough job. And uh, I honestly, there are certain people in the ownership group I don't think I can work with anymore. And because of the politics of three groups and them all being insecure with one another, it wasn't a healthy situation for me. And, you know, the one of the lead principles was, you know, and still is a good friend. And um, I had discussions with him and I said, you know, at the point in time, you can't lead the fight and run, run shield and, and run obstruction for me um, and keep this guy who is most negative out of my ability to do the job. Uh, you know, the, it's no fun and I can't be effective and I'm not interested in banging my head against a brick wall. And uh, God bless him, you know, what that particular owner at that time said, I don't know that I can hold the guy back because of the politics. You know, I have to, I have to basically appease this dude so that we stay united in, you know, against the, the third owner. And, and that was the point in time. And he said, you know, look, if you, if you want to walk, I, I'm not going to stop you from walking, uh, which was really nice. And, and, you know, I had a period of time left on the contract. I mean, he was so good. He was like, we'll give you the contract. You can walk in. And I'm like, I don't want it. You know, I, I, I don't want to leave. The job's not finished, but, you know, this is crazy. And so I went back and talked to David. And David's first thing was to, uh, do you want to come back? You know, uh, you want to come back and, you know, different role, kind of pseudo chief marketing officer role. Yep. And, and I said, well, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. I'm thinking about building a consulting business. So the next day, David calls Val, my wife, and says, you know, do you want to come back? <laughs> Classic David. Yeah. You can't get the yes from you. He's going to go to Val. Exactly. He's going to go to the real power, the real decision maker. Anybody yeah. married as long as I am knows who that is. Um, so, you know, it was very flattering and awfully nice. And, uh, you know, I went and saw Gary Batman uh, as well and said, you know, I, I can't do this. And Gary said, please stay through the All-Star game. So January 31st, I think it was 2008, we had the NHL All-Star game. Please stay through that. And I did. And after the All-Star game and the party, I went back to the office, packed everything up on February 1st, 2008, moved it into one of these little WeWork type offices, you know, Regis office and uh, said, okay, uh, all right, Ollie, great mess you get yourself into. What are you going to do now? And, and it was consulting. And uh, within a day or two, Bill Duffy, uh, EVP, CFO quit. And we started talking. He took a little while to decide what he wanted to do. And then we joined together. And quite frankly, Travis, it was, um, we had 300 full-time employees, as you know, with the Atlanta Spirit, Hawks, Thrashes, Phillips Arena, operated everything ourselves, including all the concessions, not the premium, but everything else, front and back of the house. Yep. And we had a thousand part-time employees. So I like, you know, all due respect, employees are a pain in the ass. You know, they're a lot of work. And, uh, you know, let's just consult. And so for that first year, we consulted. And that, that was our vision. And then um, a year in, uh, Tim, the business reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did an article where, you know, where I was a year after leaving the, uh, the Atlanta Spirit. And that article was read by um, the senior associate AD for external affairs, a beautiful man at Georgia Tech. And he talked to Dan Radakovich, the athletic director. They brought us in, Duff and I, and told us what they needed. We gave them a consulting project proposal. We will teach you how to sell tickets. 
And so we go back a week later to present it. And uh, they look at us, the three of them look, look at us like we're idiots, the CFO, the AD, and the senior associate AD. And we're like, what's wrong, Dan? He goes, um, we don't know how to sell tickets. We don't like selling tickets. We don't want to sell tickets. We want you to sell our tickets. Do it for us. And we went, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. You know, and so then we made the greatest move in our company's history. And the rest is history. Um, I talked to Mike Boswell, you know, one of the best trainers in the world. Charlie Chislagi, one of the best uh, ticket sales and service trainers in the world. You know them both well. And who's on your list? And, uh, and then I talked to Dr. Bill Sutton, co-author in the book, and my brother from another mother, and everybody else I could, I could talk to. And they said, uh, okay, um, you know, including Lou, uh, Lou DePauli and all of our buds, who's, who's on your list? And they said, well, there's this young up-and-comer who was actually the rookie of the year with the Phoenix Suns in the NBA, best salesperson in the whole league, and uh, your kind of person. And his name is Bill Fagan. And so we interviewed Bill Fagan. We interviewed two other guys who the shortlist for the job, uh, who were VPs already of NBA teams. And um, Bill was running the inside sales, as they called it, at Charlotte Bobcats. We took him on, our first employee. And uh, 200 employees later, you know, a billion dollars of ticket revenue produced by our company in the last uh, 11 years we've been doing this since. So one year consulting, 11 years, you know, the fan relationship management portion of the business is the biggest part, overwhelmingly college, but we've done it in, in England. We've done work all over Europe. We've done work in Mexico, Australia, New Zealand. It's multiple different it, sports. Yeah. All in, uh, yeah. Seven. Well, we have 20 different genres, seven, 17 different sports and three different entertainment genres. We've sold, Halloween haunted houses, you know, we've sold concert venues and we've sold before tickets for performing arts, you know, uh, and it, it, you know, who would have thunk it, you know, it's, um, like I said, uh, the family circus is probably the best picture, Travis, because it wasn't this amazing strategic vision. It grew and, and it continues to morph and evolve and, and pivot, you know, in, in exciting ways, which is what makes it so interesting. And kind of our conversation throughout this this conversation has been be willing to evolve and, and adapt. And you know, you mentioned you know, Bill Fagan, who's now your CEO, and and you know, I'm very fortunate to be good friends with him. I met him very early on in his career, and and you know, we used to always challenge each other a lot. But you know, I know in talking to him, and, and obviously with you, you're still involved in the day to day. You still have a huge impact on what everyone does. And a lot of people, you know, in this business want to become leaders. And a lot of people, hopefully, listening to this podcast are leaders. And so. You know, what is your advice to not only get into leadership, but to lead at a high level? Because there's that huge difference between manager and leader, right? So what is your advice to, to the leaders? No, I think it's a great question. And, you know, this is when we picked Bill Fagan, we could have gotten someone who'd already been a leader of leaders. So to me, there is, you know, there is, there is multiple levels. You're, you're a leader. You're then a leader of leaders, you know, and then you're a C-suite where, you know, you're leading people who lead leaders, you know, and, and there's very, very different skill sets and very different experiences at each of those different levels. Um, and I think that's important uh, for people to understand. So let's start at the bottom for, for young professionals. You're a leader, whether you have the leader title or not. Okay. I knew that if I went in there at 1230 
Travis Apple was probably going to be eating a sandwich or got your lunch and brought it back to the desk because you wanted to do 200 plus calls a day. Mm-hmm. You know, you were going to be the coach's son that demonstrated that you are, that demonstrated you were you going to perform at a completely different level than everybody else. And you didn't, after you were trained and knew what you were doing, you didn't need a leader to be there. You were your own leader. And you were, you were a leader by example to everybody around you. Massive leader by example to everybody around you. So one of the raise your game modules, which is one of the things where we ask a lot of young people to come to work for us and we give them what the MBA wouldn't have taught you. And I taught in the MBA program for 10 years. I know what it teaches. You know, Bill Fagan went through the Emory Executive MBA recently. And, you know, so we've updated all of our stuff to make it very current. And in there, one of the things is leadership. And it's not you becoming a leader with title. It's you becoming a leader with your daily actions that just like on, you know, a hockey team, you've got a C and an A and sometimes two A's. And the coach is, the coach is not necessarily the coach on the ice. The C and the A's are coaches on the ice. And there's leadership. And very often, Butch Goring, one thing he taught me was, you know, with our coach, Good, you know, with our captain, Good, Deneen, and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the other guys we had who were phenomenal ex-NHLers on our IHL team, which is why we won 72 and 20 and 6, you know, because it was so damn good. We had fantastic leadership on the ice that you need that leadership on the pitch, on the court, on the field in the office, in, within the Fan Relationship Management Center, and you can see those leaders. So we have a program where we invest in teaching you to be a leader, even though you don't have a leader's title. So I think that's number one. Number two, you've, you've got to, the hardest part is you've got to get away from, these are my friends, and if you're promoted within that same center or that same operation, the same club, same property, you've got to learn that it's not about being friends anymore that kind of learning how to lead and then learning how to um, lead what were your peers, as you know, full well is very difficult. And then as you move up, it tends to be more about delegating and learning how to delegate. I think those are the skill sets that you need to have. And like anything, I think um, you just have to be put in, in a position to do it. So all of our raise your game development programs, Travis had designed, to you know, your sales consultant, senior sales consultant, and then you're a team leader, and then you're a selling manager, and then you're a manager, and then you're a director. And so they raise the experiences, and you before you're in that role with that title, you've had a taste of doing it and demonstrated you can do it. I think that's really important. Uh, that makes sense. Well, you know, I certainly, again, Bernie, I appreciate your time and, and we'll kind of end it here, recap real quick. But, you know, one of the a new segment I'm going to implement is the, the hustle hot seat, kind of going back from uh, years ago on, on the ESPN end. But, you know, the first is, you know, quick, quick couple questions here. I know you go out and you're, you're a big foodie. What is the, uh, the top place you enjoy eating at? Uh, oh, it's probably Asian food for me. A, a good French restaurant. Uh, uh, we go go to uh, very close La Biblia K and Buckhead, uh, but um, probably the Asi- Asian restaurants and Chin Chin is my go-to, and certainly love Viceroy for the uh, Indian spicy food with my British influence. <laughs> nice. And then always always a good steak with a good uh, Pinot. 
Nice. And you've obviously have traveled a lot and, you know, have lived in multiple different countries. You know, what, what's your favorite place to travel to? Italy. The Italians are crazy. <laughs> I, love, I love them. Their passion is amazing. Their food is incredible. Geography is gorgeous. You know, Positano, Rome, you right. know, uh, Tuscany, all gorgeous. Bernie, if you would, if you would build a ship to sail the world, what's the name of your ship? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, all aboard. All aboard. All aboard. Everybody welcome. Nice. Everybody welcome. Let's have diversity and let's uh, enjoy that culture. I love it. And, and you know, final thing, you know, Bernie, you've given a lot of advice throughout the podcast of 52 Weeks Hustle. You know, quickly, what, what would be three key takeaways you would, you would give to every listener here? Um, be yourself and be true to yourself. Uh, invest in yourself, you know, um, really, the, and, and uh, trust, trust people, even though I've worked for some pretty bad people, I've worked for some incredibly amazing people. Um, trust, I think you have to see the best in people until they prove to you that, um, uh, that that's not a good approach, you know, and then that, at that point in time, um, probably it's take longer to hire. And when you realize that someone needs to go fire them quicker, you know, uh, not, not a pleasant thing to do, but, uh, really invest in taking the time to hire people slowly, carefully and get the right people in the right fit. And when you realize that someone is not the right fit, you know, the, obviously all of the energy bus, the John Gordon stuff, the Jim Collins, good to great, get the right people in the right seats, get the, get the wrong people off the bus and uh, sorry, get the right people on the bus, wrong people off the bus and get the right people in the right seats. Oh, absolutely. Well, Dr. Bernie Mullen, your founder and chairman of the Aspire Group, you've had such a distinguished career. I owe a lot to you and certainly the people you brought in the Atlanta family. Certainly a pleasure to have you on 52 Weeks of Hustle. Thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and certainly an honor to continue to learn from you and have you in my career. Well, it's my honor and it's my privilege and my pleasure, Travis, because it's the greatest thing when you're at this end of the career, looking down on people like yourself. Uh, knowing I can call you as a friend as well as a mentoree and learn from you and see the success. That's the greatest reward in this business without a shadow of a doubt. So you take care of yourself. God bless. Look after yourself. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you. You stay safe and healthy. Again, this is Travis Apple with 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Please be sure to follow the podcast and watch on YouTube. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with another great industry leader. Have a great week. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.